Now it's time um, for the man who I said earlier um, personifies all tonight's themes and it's true that he does from revolution to revelation from activism to confession a simple country parson <laughs> who also happens to have been variously part of Bronski Beat and one of the communards. He is presenter of Radio 4 Saturday Live, parent to various Daxoons and author of the hit memoirs Fathomless Riches and Bringing in the Sheaves. Recently he shared a conversation with his mum on Facebook, which I'm sure he won't mind me repeating here, um, and it goes like this. Mum, what are you doing in Glasgow? Me. It's a writer's festival. Mum, why are you going? You're not a writer. <laughs> Me, I've actually written four books. Mum, not proper books, like Alistair Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome the Reverend Richard Coles. <laughs> Oh, your mother. I uh, know, bless her. Yes, indeed. This is very nice. Look, I feel so frumpy. Frumpy? Well, no, there you are. This is the, you know, the, the Savoy and all its glamour and glory and all its baroque splendour. And there's you all dressed up. And then I did try to dress up, but I am genuinely a simple country pastor. And you dress in the morning in your vicarage for what's perfectly suitable for wandering around Kettering and Findens. And I get on the train, and by the time I get to Luton Airport Park, where I look like I'm dressed for lambing. <laughs> and, um, so I'm sorry I'm so frumpy, but I will you know, kind of take clerical privilege on that one. Thou art not frumpy. I forgive the perceived frumpiness. There is no frumpiness. Um, you actually spend a lot of time in the book talking about clerical bling, more of which we'll come on to in a moment. And I should point out that tonight, the socks I'm wearing actually came from Rome. Gamarelli's? Yes. Yeah. From, from the Bishop's Clothing Shop. I know a Gamarelli sock from 50 yards. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, more of that in a bit. I thought you'd start by reading for us from, yes. from the new memoir, yes. which is your fourth book. I'm sure you told your mother that. I did tell my mother that, yes. Well, it's just the very beginning of it, really. It's a book called um, Bringing in the Sheaves. Those of you who have church background might recognize that as a hymn. Well, and, and bringing in the, the sheaves in question, wheat and chaff of my ears as a priest, was an attempt really to continue the story where I left it off, uh, which was at ordination, uh, with a sort of exploration of what it is to be um, a priest trying to do that stuff today. Uh, I'm vicar of Findon in Northamptonshire, which is a little place rather overlooked. It was quite important for a very short while in the 14th century. And they um, <laughs> And for that, they built an enormous church, which we haven't been able to afford to heat properly since the 15th century. <laughs> so we've got a problem anyway. But I thought I'd just do a little bit of the texture of the life, if you see what I mean. I'm sitting at my desk in my study, looking at the hypericum crowding in at the window, Rose of Sharon, as it is known, an indefatigable bloomer twice a year, but not now, in the early spring. I think of the passage from Song of Songs in which the bride is compared with its bloom. It cannot be what we call Rose of Sharon, I think, or the lover would be quite the wrong colour and cast with a sickly hue, so I decide to Google it. Suddenly, there's a commotion, and I see a long-tailed tit has arrived, perching right in front of me. Perhaps the pane of glass between us makes me invisible, but then the phone rings and I move and he flies away. Someone has called to tell me a parishioner, long unwell, is dying, and would I go to see him? I take the necessary kit, a stole and an oil stock and a prayer book, and when I get there, he's with a nurse. I ask how he is, and she says, comfortable, 
but on a morphine driver, which delivers a regular dose to anesthetize him from the pain which I can see is taking its toll, and he's in and out of lucidity. She leaves, and I talk to him, but I'm not sure if he understands much or anything of what I say. I anoint him with holy oil, and he seems to respond to that, to stir a little. So I sit beside him and read to him from the Psalms, which I know he prefers in the Book of Common Prayer version. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills, from whence cometh my help. After a while he seems to wake, almost, and taking this as encouragement, I carry on through the songs of ascents as they're known, until we reach the great Psalm 130, De Profundis. Out of the deep have I called unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. He stirs again and tries, I think, to say something. So I pull my chair closer. He looks at me and with a great effort says, shut up, you stupid twat. (laughs) (laughs) They were his last words. Oh, no. (laughs) What do you mean? Oh, my God. When his grandchildren and children say what were his last words, shut Shut up, up, you stupid stupid twat. twat. Both sublime and ridiculous. Well, yes. Well, of course, those things chase each other very closely, don't they? Like a dog its tail. Um, Especially, I think, in clerical life, where the sublime and the ridiculous are sort of really part of the territory, I think. Do you often, do you think people put much time into thinking about their last words? Do you, do you remember people's last words generally? Well, um, very few people have the presence of mind to really, to, to summon the last words that they may carefully have constructed at the moment when they're required because... Yeah. <laughs> they have other things to be doing. Well, like a thief in the night, of course, it comes and, uh, and very... I mean, I love this great story. I love the story about Arnold Bennett's death. Do you know about that? Well, he, was, um, he, was, he died in a hotel. I've done this thing lately about people dying in hotels. I was fascinated with Emil's story about... I, I love hotels, too. Uh, and Arnold Bennett died in, in a hotel. An hotel, I should say. And um, he died of a condition which left him peculiarly sensitive to noise. And so for that reason, the hotel management very thoughtfully strew uh, straw on the street outside, lest he be... Um, disturbed by the clatter of passing vehicles. But apparently at the moment of his death, a milk float overturned. Oh, God. And, uh, and the sound of breaking glass accompanied him to his reward. It's unfortunate. Um, there's another great one. Do you know Chekhov's last words? No, I don't. Uh, I won't do the Russian. Um, but, um, a more word. It was, no, was it Chekhov? No, I think it was Ibsen. I beg his pardon. It was Ibsen. And, his, and, and they were. His wife said, oh, Henrik, I do believe you're looking better. And he said, on the contrary, my dear. And that was that. Um, let's go to the beginnings of this priestliness, because there was, there was none of it in, in your family growing up in, in Northamptonshire. Well, not growing up, although, interestingly, a bit has turned up since then. Well, you Ra- found one. Well, no, I found three, actually. Rather peculiarly, my own parish of Finden, I discovered after two, two weeks after arriving, our archivist, who, who died last year, a wonderful man, uh, he came up and he said, oh, I've got something to show you. And I said, what's that? And it turns out that two of my ancestors were vicars there in the 17th century, from 1612 to 1645. And if anyone here works from, who do you think you are? That's <laughs> what uh, Claire Balding has just done it. She got a trip to America for nothing. Um, but also, weirdly... Uh, when I was ordained, which is 11 years ago now, uh, they publish a notice of this momentous event in the Church Times and other places. And anyway, I got an email from a chap saying, 
was your grandfather Eric Coles? And I said, yes, he was. And he said, well, I'm not sure if you're aware that your grandfather sowed his seed a little more widely than convention really? allows. Yes, turned out he had another, in fact, couple of families, really. Um, <laughs> and anyway, this, this person was the, was the fruit of his loins and unknown to me until that point. So we had this email conversation. He said, well, I just noticed because actually I'm also a priest of the Church of England. I thought, oh, that's funny. And anyway, <laughs> conversation developed, and he told me what he did. And he was not only a priest, but he worked for an, an, a religious organization, which I then looked up and discovered was an organization dedicating to rescuing gay Christians from their sinful desires. Oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> so there we are. We left it there. Yeah. <laughs> probably for the best. Yeah. I think. So, but the, the, the family, you, when you were growing up, was you were kind of kings, kings of shoes. Well, more like kind of archdukes of shoes, I think. We were, I grew up in Northamptonshire, where I live now, in the days when Northamptonshire was a manufacturing county, in the days when Britain was a manufacturing country. We made shoes, and Northamptonshire was famous for that. And I was the son of a shoe manufacturer, who was the son of a shoe manufacturer. Going back to this extraordinary bloke, my great-great-grandfather, who started life as a silk weaver in a, in, a, in a rather dark and swampy cottage up the road in a place called Desborough. And then we track him through censuses. He became a clock repairer. Then the next census, he's a clock maker. The next census, he's moved to Kettering. Obviously, vast increase in the socioeconomic ranking there. Um, and he became an inventor. And he invented the machine that makes Christmas crackers. Um, Thank you. Uh, and, um, That's the easiest round of applause anybody's ever had. <laughs> but he also invented lots of machines for mechanising shoe production, and that was really the foundation of the family fortune. So uh, in common with so many people of that era, he was a liberal in politics, nonconformist in religion, and by the end of the 19th century was a Tory Anglican. And, uh, and we had these shoe factories, and so that was the world I was born into. Really. And is it the world that you were expected to continue in, do you think? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I went, it was a very sort of, uh, you know, it was a sort of mechanised uh, life as well, in that I you know, was following in footsteps. But you I went, went to the same school. Went to the same school as my dad and my grandfather and all that kind of thing. And then uh, by the time I got to in the 1970s, of course, when uh, I, I hit maturity, two things happened. One was the collapse of the manufacturing sector, so there were no shoes to go into. And the other one was the collapse of the fiction of my heterosexuality, which again had a major impact on my life choices thereafter. Which is the bigger impact? That's a very good question, actually. Um, I'm not sure that... Um, well, I suppose Slingback's loss was pop music's gain, <laughs> so I don't... Um, but the two things that came together, so I reached this point. I mean, it's interesting, because I'm, I'm, by nature, I think, rather a timid and conventional person. I would have quite liked timidly and conventionally going into doing what I was doing before, but I was rescued from that by homosexuality, which is very good at, at that kind of thing. So I found myself at the end of the 70s in radically different circumstances from those that had been... What, were the, what were the new circumstances? <coughs> what was your kind of Kansas as a Well, word? I sort of crashed out of education and, uh, uh, at 16 and went to the bad. And um, we had these... Um, at my school, there were two boys. And their father was a high-ranking diplomat, I think in the Thai... Uh, I think it was... I can't remember, not say. But anyway, they brought in a diplomatic bag into the UK 
substances that we enjoyed with enormous relish at school. <laughs> and if I were to say my school career ended under a cloud, I would be speaking literally, it really did. <laughs> and it was felt that I should seek fresh educational challenges. And uh, my mum, realising that I was perhaps not uh, as settled comfortably into the plan, as they thought, found this wonderful, it was 1978, in the days when we had things called local education authorities, some of you I'm sure will remember them, uh, and, a, and a vision for education and its transforming power. And she found this brilliant place in Stratford-on-Avon with a visionary department of drama and liberal arts, founded by a chap called Gordon Valens, who was a great pioneer of theatre and education. It was a sort of finishing school for delinquent middle-class teenagers when I think about it now. But off I went there and then spent the next two years gradually acclimatising myself to homosexuality insofar as that was available in Stratford-on-Avon in 1978. <laughs> <coughs> More than Kettering is all I can say. Um, and, uh, and I spent the next two years wearing black footless tights and papier-mâché masks and inflicting Marxist street theatre Mostly on the residents of nursing homes who were too slow to wheel themselves away <laughs> when we arrived. And, um, you may have killed some of them. You may, that may have been your earliest experience. Well, I did, I did learn words. something about the raw power of theatre. I mean, there was... A, <laughs> we did, uh, Gordon decided it would be a good idea to take one of the Coventry medieval mystery plays and kind of update it for present consumption. So he gave a sort of full-blooded... I think it was really a Maoist reading of the Coventry <laughs> medieval. And we took it to Coventry and performed it in the shopping precinct. Yeah. And I was cast as a jester with all the kit and everything. And I had to go and interact with passers-by and impress upon them uh, the very sort of self-destructive nature of late monopoly capitalism <laughs> in the manufacturing city like Coventry. And the first person I interacted with interacted right back by punching me in the face. <laughs> So that was really the end, uh, rightly, of my theatrical career. Um, so, I mean, given the great riches of Stratford upon even that you've described, why on earth did you want to go to London, and how did you get there? Well, I got run over. <laughs> As t after my 18th birthday, I got a shiny new bicycle, and I was riding it into college one day and was hit by a man driving a van. And um, I got criminal injuries compensation. 2,000 quid in 1980 when I was 18, and that was really my ticket out, because I'd sensed already, even though Leamington Spa had a gay night in Churchill's on a Monday, <laughs> that there were seven days in the week, Damien. <laughs> <laughs> and what about Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and indeed Sunday? Um, and so it was my ticket to London. And like lots of people of my age and, and, uh, and composition, I, I ran away and arrived in London in 1980, I answered an ad in Gay News and got a flat share in King's Cross. Um, and so ill-prepared for the big city. I mean, it was, a, it was at the corner, it was above a TV repair shop where the Caledonian Road meets the Pentonville Road. And it was a place, if I can put it this way, active with soul traders. And, um, <laughs> and I can remember standing in this window of a bedroom, looking down to the street and saying to my flatmate, why are all those ladies waiting for a bus? <laughs> <laughs> and they think, oh, it's all right, because people kept stopping and offering them lifts, so they, they got home. But, um, I mean, I shouldn't make light of it, but it was quite a seedy place, and an education for me, arriving from kind of middle-class, middle England, to find myself in London, which was not only seedy and seamy and quite fierce in King's Cross, 
but was also a place of huge cultural and political uh, churn. Margaret Thatcher's government had come in in 1979. Great hero to you, I know. Um, <laughs> huge impact on your life, on all our lives. And then opposite her, on the other side of the Thames at County Hall, was Ken Livingston presiding over the GLC. And that sort of described this uh, uh, a battlefield. And London was changing very rapidly, very quickly. Lots of subcultures rising, forming, reforming. Another young runaway, gay runaway, uh, arrived at Euston from Glasgow, and that was Jimmy Somerville. From a very, thank you, well, thank him. A very different background from, I should say when, when Jimmy and I met, we were both living uh, in Bloomsbury, very near Gaze the Word, and I know um, Uli's here from wonderful, Gaze the Word. Wonderful, amazing bookshop. Well, it was, it was a wonderful, amazing bookshop, and it's actually the place where I met Jimmy Somerville. Well, you say in the book where you met Jimmy Somerville knowing his name and in, <laughs> and in daylight. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Awkward. Let's just gloss that one for now. But yeah. then you were, um, And I remember saying to Jimmy, why did you run away from Glasgow? And he said, well, people discovered that I was gay. And I said, how did that happen? And he confessed that he was the only boy in his class who'd bunked off school to watch the Bay City Rollers open a carpet shop. <laughs> so we arrived in the same place at the same time. And caught, it was a very interesting time to be young and gay and in London. So what, what kind of young gay man were you at that point? Because you'd come from the provinces. So, so were you kind of sort of wide-eyed and excited for it? Or were you a bit scared by totally it? Totally scared. I mean, I, I kind of, um, I had, I grew up in Kettering, which an admirable place in so many ways is not somewhere in which the kind of tide of culture rises with great force, it would be fair to say, I think. But like lots of people who, who love music and literature and that kind of thing, that, uh, I kind of fed myself. So I used to send off for a thing called Lives of the Great Composers, which arrived every three weeks with a sort of 10-inch record that you could play. And so I listened to music and I read. And I just knew very early on that there was a life which was the life I might live, but it wasn't in Kettering. There was a unisex hair salon in Dolkeith Place, where that was about as far as it got for adventure, I think. Um, <laughs> So I sensed there was a world out there, but it was very much in my, in my mind. And I had this idea of a kind of bohemian London, which I'd read about and fantasized about and thought about. And arriving in London, what I found was, um, was reality, which of course was rather different. I mean, Tim talks about the, the, and in his fantastic novel describes the great activism um, of, of New York. And Amor talks about the revolution that was happening in Moscow. What, what was London like when you, when you arrived? In, and where, was your, where were your loyalties? Because in a sense, you came from more, more the, the Thatcher side of it, and you were drawn more to the kind of Livingston side. Well, I kind of rejected all that. My, my sort of, my patrimony, I rejected. Well, it also rejected me, come to think of it. So it was like a mutual understanding. Which there. was bigger, which was, which was greater the rejection you of it or it of you do you think well I think I probably took more notice of it than it took of me okay. um, so anyway but uh, so I, I kind of knew I'd sign also the most handsome boy in my school read the Guardian his dad kept a post office and uh, and that seemed full of uh, romantic potential to me somehow I don't know why so um, so I kind of abandoned the politics and culture of my forefathers and looked elsewhere and then when I arrived in London to be, if you were young and gay in London in 1980, something very interesting was happening. On the one hand, um, the first generation of gay liberation had come along and created space in which you could be gay, so there were places to go, and an activist identity. But my generation had also been energized by punk rock. 
Exactly. And that was made, I mean, you can't overstate the significance of that. And that gave a sort of edge to it and also a political engagement, ironically, with something whose creed seemed so kind of anarchistic and nihilistic. But nonetheless, there was a kind of really sharp edge to that. And those things came together and created a very fertile or febrile atmosphere in which activism and sexual politics and, and politics politics uh, were very much allied. So if you were a young gay man, you were a Trotskyist, you went along to dreary meetings in West Hampstead um, where you were criticised for writing a cheque for subscribing to bourgeois formalism, that kind of thing. But, um, but that was the London of the day. Um, and how did you get from there to music? And what were you spending your days doing? I mean, your £2,000 would eventually have, have run out. So were you, were you working? The first thing I did was get my ears pierced. I remember that. that was, um, the and the second thing was buy a bottle of TCP to deal with the infection <laughs> consequent on that. But then I bought, I, I'd been a chorister when I was a boy. Big fact. I left over, I, so I grew up. My introduction to both music and the mysteries of the Church of England came together at the age of eight. And I had that enormously privileged training that you do if you're uh, uh, an English chorister or British chorister of having a professional musical education before I was in long trousers. Uh, and so I had musical stuff that I, I took with me. When I arrived in London, I bought a saxophone, and the saxophone was really my entree into uh, a different way of, of working in music. I started off busking, actually. My friend Fergus... Where did you busk? Well, not very far from here, on the Hungerford Bridge, actually. And uh, in a rare moment of insight, my friend Fergus, who played five-string banjo, and me on soprano saxophone... We found out what was playing at the festival hall, and then we did arrangements of it for five-string banjo and soprano saxophone. <laughs> I have to say Wagner didn't quite <laughs> work. But, but anyway, so we used to play that, and it sort of caught people's imagination a bit, so they'd give us some money. And then it was, you know, the days of Melody Maker, when you answered ants in the Melody Maker. And I, got, I did a few sessions and played in a few. I played with Pauline Black, who'd been in the Selector, who's a wonderful singer. And, uh, and then all of a sudden discovered that in our midst we had this extraordinarily talented, distinctive singer in Jimmy Somerville that we didn't know about until Channel 4 started. Symptomatic at the time, again, Channel 4 began and there was a very uh, brilliant commissioning editor called Alan Fountain and he gave money and equipment, new generation lightweight video equipment to these emerging subcultures in London and said, turn the cameras on yourself, make a film about yourselves. And so a group of us did. We were the Gay Youth Video Project. And we made a, a film about ourselves called Framed Youth, which I have to say, won the Grierson Award. Thank you very much. Um, although it did rather divide the judges as they ruefully mentioned as they gave us the prize. You thought the Oscars was controversial. Um, <laughs> But for that, we needed some music. So I said, well, I'll play the saxophone. And then Jimmy, who, is, you, if you know Jimmy, has got a kind of, kind of gruff Glaswegian voice from Mary Hill accent. All right, door. All right, door. And, uh, and he said he'd sing something. And he opened his mouth, and what came out was this extraordinary... Falsetto sounds too technical a word for it. It was a kind of angelic choir-like, quite like a choir boy's voice, but with adult power and experience in it, something that was both kind of vulnerable and also very strong. And that produced Bronski Beat, and Bronski Beat made a record called Small Town Boy. And that record was, I think, extraordinarily powerful for anyone who'd kind of run away to a big city to try to find a better life somehow. And your, your, your role was in, in writing words, in writing music, and you had been a chorister, you had been 
up there at the front, but your voice broke, your voice changed. So how, how was, what was that moment like? And what was it that like then for you to renegotiate a space with somebody who still had that well, angelic voice? Puberty, traumatizing in so many ways, was especially traumatic for me because I'd had a very good boy's voice, boy treble voice. And then I was actually head chorister at the time. And now I hear, if I go and hear a choir now, you hear the head chorister who tends to be at the older end of the age spectrum. There's a sort of creaminess in that boy treble which presages doom. It's a lovely sound, but it means also the voice is about to break. And I had that in my voice. I didn't know what was happening. And there was a big civic service and the mayor and corporation were in and we were singing an anthem which I love called Thou Visitest the Earth. And there was a nice treble solo in it with a long held high note. And I got there fine and then it just, in the middle, fell apart. And in the most exposed sort of way, my glory as head chorister and my enjoyment in, in singing sort of disappeared. And then to hear Jimmy all of a sudden effortlessly, reprodu not reproduce it, produce something much better than that, both was a moment of recognition and also a kind of reproach at my own uh, mutedness compared to his eloquence. And that was rather a theme of our awkward and difficult relationship was uh, my kind of resentment, I think, and jealousy of him being able to do something that I quite fancied being able to do myself. Also, it seems to me to be reflected in some ways with your relationship with religion and with the church ease. When I think about um, the beginning of, you know, when you, when, you became a, when you became a Catholic, it did seem to me an awful lot like you wanting, to, wanting the boys that didn't want you. The Catholic church was, was a boy that you were never going to get. Well, yes, except, I mean, yes, I think that's true. And that's a very powerful an awkward trope, I think, in lots of gay men's lives, particularly of my vintage and character. But it was also, I think, I kind of like a fight. And I thought it was very interesting what Tim said about the excitement of those activist years around Larry Kramer in the 1990s in New York, which I caught a bit of. Mine came sort of a bit earlier. But it was indeed bliss... Well, it was in one sense, bliss was it in that dawn to be alive and to be young was very heavy. But it was also to bring in the bookshop band, the best of times, the worst of times. So there was something electric about that and incredibly vivid about that, light and dark about that. And that's something which I think made me, gave me a strength and a purpose that might have been lacking in someone who's naturally quite diffident and timid, I think. Um, your early experiences of, of the epidemic did seem to me to be different um, than the ones that Tim described. There did seem to be um, more state support um, on this side of, of the Atlantic, or at least a certain kind of pragmatism that, that, that seemed to me quite British in a way. Well, I'd like to think so. It was actually almost entirely due to the efforts of one extraordinary man, which was Norman Fowler. Believe it or not. Who was then, I think, Conservative Health Secretary in, the, in Margaret Thatcher's government. Now, the idea that Margaret Thatcher's government would be able to answer uh, the extraordinary crisis that developed very quickly in this country seemed about as likely as Ronald Reagan doing it in America, who tens of thousands died before he uttered the word. Um, but Norman Fowler, for some reason, got it, and got it very quickly. And although I think initial responses to the crisis were rather clumsy, you remember those gravestones thudding down and lilies and all that kind of thing, don't die of ignorance. Nonetheless, there was this kind of seriousness about it, a realization of, of, of how big this was. But it was also a time that was intensely homophobic. I can remember one of the worst ways. Well, two things I remember vividly was one was talking to my grandfather about it, who had lived through the First World War, and I was by 1986, 87, which was the year he died. Um, half the people we knew died. It was that awful. 
And I remember talking about that, and he said it reminded him a bit of the First World War of a generation of young men suddenly um, halving. But he said the difference was that everyone experienced it. And I think our particular um, catastrophe at that time was quite localized. Um, and I remember an editorial in the Daily Telegraph which said, I can still see it now, said, um, the problem with AIDS is that it's not confined to homosexuals. And that really was the tenor of the time. And of course, that, and that just kind of really spurred us on to more activism, a different kind of activism. It wasn't just about fighting for your rights. It was about fighting for survival for lots of people. And of course, the other thing about it was that grief, and I know this very particularly now because I spend a lot of time with people who are afflicted with grief now, it, everyone goes a bit mad and readings grow erratic, if I can quote Philip Larkin. And, uh, and it was a very odd time. And, and I think it's absolutely right. It's very interesting when I wrote the first book of memoir, I returned to those years for the first time in nearly 30 years. And uh, it was, someone said, oh, it must have, was it cathartic to write about it? Well, answer no, it wasn't. It made me realize that so much of that experience is just untouched. It lies there, unexamined, because it's simply too difficult or too painful to examine. And when I was doing book tours around the place, sometimes I would look up and I'd read passages about, well, the death of Mark Ashton in particular, which was 30 years ago this month, was a huge influence on many of us. I would look up and I would see caught in light little sort of pinpricks of light in the corner of 50-year-old men's eyes, my age, who went through that same experience. And for many of us, I think, it hasn't really been examined. And some of us have got together to start trying to examine it in a slightly more structured way. I, I think one of the things that, that, that shocked me about the, the grief and the madness around the grief and your expression of it was that you pretended, became convinced, lied about being HIV positive yeah. yourself. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you could talk about how that came upon you and also the reversal of that, which you don't really explain in the book what the moment was that made you decide to tell people you'd lied about it. Well, it, it was, there was a moment of intense, it was a really difficult period where Mark had just died and then a whole load of people around us died. And then I, we were on tour at the time um, which is never really good circumstances for dealing with enormously challenging um, emerging events. And uh, I came down with shingles, and shingles in those days was very often first sign of an immune system collapse. And so I naturally, with my tendency to hypochondria, assumed that I was HIV positive. So I was too ill to continue, so I came back to London and went to see a doctor who will be nameless, but was much used by the music industry for his liberal interpretation of diagnosis for a fee. And, um, and he said, well, I'm going to test you for HIV. And he did, in those days, you had to wait. I think it was 10 days or a fortnight before the results came back. I was convinced that I was dying, naturally. Went back on tour and had a huge row with Jimmy about something. And in the middle of this, blurted out that I was HIV positive. And then immediately got um, a solicitous and kind response, which actually thought, well, thank you very much. And then a couple of days later, I got the test results back and I was HIV negative, which makes me the only person ever to have been for a moment disappointed to have had an HIV <laughs> negative <laughs> diagnosis. Um, but by then the story was, was out. And so then I had, to, I had to reverse it. So I put it off as long as I possibly could and pretended it hadn't happened and hoped people would sort of forget. And, and then in the end I thought, no, I've got to tell people. So I had to go and tell people 
that I was, in fact, not... You know, the bad news is I've told you a terrible lie. The good news is I'm not dying. And, uh, and how, how, did, how did people take it? I think reviews were mixed, I think it would be fair to say. I mean, some people were very generous about it, including Jimmy Somerville, who uh, was actually very kind about it. Um, my oldest friend, my best friend, uh, was really very hurt indeed and, and didn't speak to me for quite a long time. Did eventually, thank goodness. But um, it was, you know, I offer no defense of it. It was a really, really bad, awful thing to have done. And of course, compounded by the realization that there were lots of people who really were HIV positive and dying. And to have lied about that was unconscionable. The other interesting thing that's come to about since talking about that is that I realized I wasn't the only person who did that. No, many people did. Yeah, so that's been an, an interesting one, unpacking that a little bit. It was also, you know, there were also other things in there too, harder to admit, which is about wanting to be on the stage of that, wanting to be at the center of that, because I hadn't really understood what was happening, I don't think. Not my finest hour. Yeah, I mean, and hard too for all those other people around me who were affected, affected by that. In the background, in this time, particularly when you were finding it hardest, was there any sense in you of retreating to or seeking to answer questions in a spiritual way? Was there a stirring of any kind of yeah, faith? Yeah, there was. I mean, I wouldn't, I very strongly uh, resist the idea that it was a retreat of, it was an advance, actually. What, one of the things that happened was I got involved with the London Lighthouse, which was then the first dedicated facility for people with HIV and AIDS. And there I met some extraordinary... I remember these Roman Catholic nuns who lived in a convent, I think, in Notting Hill. And without any hesitation, while the rest of the world was kind of reeling with surprise and horror and fear, just volunteered to help look after people who were... You know, they, it, was, it was an extraordinary, vulnerable experience to be living in a city like London in a developed nation with everything that medical science and medical care could provide. And people were dying of these ridiculous medieval plagues. Uh, cough on Tuesday, dead on Friday. And people were very scared by that. But they were just unhesitating, unjudging, unjudgmental, and extraordinarily generous with their compassion mm. and their care. And I remember that was something which struck me quite powerfully. And then as I kind of processed that, and also as I came to terms with my own, the own demands on my conscience from my unconscionable lie, I realized I started getting religious twinges is all I can say. And I think partly it was even though I spent a lot of time in church and chapels and cathedrals when I was a kid singing, but I was absolutely clear that religion was a fairy tale and that no one with their wits about them would try to live according to that for a second. But I nonetheless sensed, experienced, felt something in those places that was distinctive and powerful and profound. And I just started wanting that. It wasn't something particularly formulated. So you wanted the feeling that you associated with being in those places? Yeah. It wasn't even wanting, it was like being hungry and smelling pies. Mm. And, uh, and I eventually, very reluctantly, found my way with the help of somebody else, a vicar's wife, who's. Uh, Sarah Maitland, the writer, wonderful writer, Sarah Maitland. And it was Adam Mars-Jones, who was my duet partner at the time, put me in touch with her. And, uh, and she kind of pushed me towards a church, having carefully chosen, with great insight, the most flamboyant theatrical high church shrine in the whole of London. <laughs> and I walked into that, and it was... I walked in as a spectator, I came out as a participant, and I've been participating ever since. What happened in that moment to transform you from spectator to participant? Well, it was two things. One was, it had been a long time coming, of course, 
um, and the moment was ripe. But actually what happened was I went in and there was, a, I just remember kind of lots of people dressed up, nice, lovely music, nice incense, Ooh, interesting, da, 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 da. reminded me a little bit of heaven, <laughs> the nightclub, not the <laughs> ultimate destination. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, it was a Eucharist, although I didn't know what that was. And I just remember sitting there, and my senses were kind of super alert. And the priest lifted up the host, and there was a ding on the bell and a puff of incense, and light came slanting through a clear story window. And it was a ding of the bell. It was like, I felt like one of Pavlov's dogs, this kind of prof just huge reaction. Something kind of broke within me, and I knew at that moment that that was home actually and you know you can you can you can like church but you you know you don't have to buy it you don't have to you know you you don't have to become it and what was do. the pro do you i think you do. you do no i think i think one does right i think um i think when you start doing it if you start doing it properly you really you realize that actually you have to start doing it properly with other people. And that involves levels of organization with all the, what comes with that of kind of hypocrisy and frustration and all that, but you just have to do that. There's no escaping um, because we're called to be to a common life. And that means we have to do it with other people who we didn't really understand. I'm reading Andrew Solomon's brilliant book, Far From the Tree. I'm oh, sure many have read it, but he writes a lot about how if you're gay, your identity is horizontally constructed. In mm. other words, the kind of vertical constructs of your race, your family, that kind of stuff. You have to find a, ho a horizontal construct to work out who you are yeah. because you don't get born into, into um, a gay structure. You have to find it. And that's so parallel, actually, to finding a way into Christianity too, which is another horizontal structure. So I kept finding these peculiar kind of parallels between, on the one hand, coming out as gay and then also coming out as... Church of England. Which was harder, coming out as Christian or coming out as gay? Well, they were happened at different times, of course. And mm -hmm. so coming out as gay was a big drama. And like lots of people, you know, I grew up with a deeply internalized homophobia, as everyone did, and that took a bit of fixing, took a long time to fix. And there was a period of um, intense depression for me around that, which was difficult. I wouldn't want to revisit that. I wouldn't revisit that. Um, but the awkward thing about coming out as Christian was that it did sort of feel that you had all of a sudden taken up residence in the belly of the beast, and that took a bit of understanding and explaining. And I can remember a friend of mine from my activist days, I bumped into him in a nightclub in Islington, and it was noisy, and he said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm at university. He said, what are you doing? And I said, theology. And he went, geology. <laughs> and I said, no, theology. He went, geology. Theology, geology, he just couldn't hear the word. And I did indeed do theology. And of course what I found out was that Christianity is a hugely rich and complex tradition and in which I was not the first person to be experiencing what I was experiencing and trying to make sense of it. Currently, I mean, you're performing marriages for people in an institution in which you yourself cannot be married. And I, right. wonder, I wonder how that feels for you. Well, on a good day, it feels like a reason to sustain the hope to which we are called in the belief that it'll all be all right in the end. All shall be well, and all manner all of things, things shall, shall be, well. be well. And on a bad day, like at the moment, it feels like being in an abusive relationship. And you have to kind of find your way through that. And how are you doing that? On a good day or a bad day? <laughs> Either day. You have to live in hope, I think, mm. and uh, I and also just you know a bit of realism. People are p 
people. The idea that some, I can remember, I, used, I lived in a monastery for two years, which was wonderful, and I remember going into it thinking it would be a place where, where Christians mature in discipleship, would be living <laughs> lives of serene dedication and commitment, because what you discover is the human condition, which is anything but that. So, you know, you realize that it gets interesting at precisely the point where you realize we are imperfect people called to perfection, and the gap between those two things is everything that's interesting about it. Um, so that's going on. But the abusive relationship thing is you live in hope of change. And a lot of us have worked very hard to try to secure very modest changes in the Church of England's dispensation towards LGBT plus people. And we were rather hoping that there would be a kind of tiny movement, mm. a twitch in the eyelid of the Church of England in that direction. But there was a statement by the House of Bishops recently, which, if anything, was backwards rather than forwards, in spite of the infuriatingly double-speak language that the church uses of affirming people, which means denying them equal rights, or ensuring <laughs> their mutual flourishing, which means abusing them. Um, so that's a, it's intensely frustrating at the moment. Do you think that eventually you would be able to get married in the church in which you work? Yes. Well, I'm 55. So I don't know how long it's going to take and whether I'll be physically able to waddle down the aisle when the day comes. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it'll be, it will, I genuinely, you I really it believe happen. it'll be fine in the, I think what will, I think there's a tipping point. Mm. My, 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 my sense is that there's a tipping point in which even the House of Bishops, which is caught in a massively complex echo chamber of its own creation, will realize that the cost of inclusion is just going to be, uh, less than the cost of exclusion, and that's the tipping point. And I think we're there now. My fear is is that we will go so far beyond it without actually changing at all, that we will cease to be intelligible, let alone relevant, to the people whom we are called to serve. And, you know, the fact is that most people manage very well without us, and that's tough. Um, I just want to say thank you to Richard for sharing his truth, all of it tonight. Thank you so much, Richard Coles. Thank you so much.